invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 22. Nearly finished with 2 Samuel. And then we'll be bumping uh, Luke to the evening for a while and uh, doing some topical messages for the beginning of the year, re- re- uh, reaffirming the vision of what we are as a church and why we are what we are. And looking forward to that. But still three chapters left in Second Samuel. Tonight, title of the, the sermon, A Song Unto the Lord. Uh, the last month or so of messages in Second Samuel have been quite difficult to study and, and to preach through. Uh, David has been experiencing the very deepest realities of God's judgment upon him. Uh, God is still being very gracious, still being very merciful, still being very patient, but the last many chapters have been troubling, difficult. David has been forced to flee Jerusalem because his son is seeking to overthrow his kingdom and to kill him. And this is the unfortunate circumstance that God said would occur as a judgment for David's sin with Bathsheba in committing adultery and then the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And so we have this horrible circumstance that comes as a natural consequence of David's sinful choices, and it's just not been enjoyable to, 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 to think about. It's never enjoyable to watch a person live through the consequences of sin. And yet, it, it is a part of, life, choices and consequences. It's something that as we consider this life in which we live, we make these choices, we see people make choices, and while we can do, while we work hard to protect ourselves and others from those sinful choices, we understand that we can't protect people from the consequences of the choices that they make. We might be able to protect them from making the choice. That's what we desire to do. That's why we have church. That's why what we do in our families. But once those choices are made, oftentimes the consequences are simply out of our hands. This week, however, we get a break. We, we find not only hope, But we find rest, if I may put it that way. We read of David's praise unto the Lord. A response which we might in our humanity think strange, considering all of the things that David has endured. But from a spiritual perspective, what David is going to write in 2 Samuel 22 makes perfect sense. As we understand that it's not God's fault that David made poor choices. It's not God's fault that we make poor choices. And indeed, all who truly know God fully understand that God's heart yearns to bless His people. God's heart yearns to show mercy and grace. So much so does God's heart yearn to bless His people, His creation, that He gave the life of His only begotten Son to make that relationship with Him possible. This psalm is David's blessing unto the Lord. A reminder to himself and to all who would read and sing it, That even in the midst of chastening and judgment, God is good. God loves us, and He is worthy of our praise. Now the psalm we consider this evening is just about the same, slight modifications as Psalm 18. So if you don't have that in your Bible, you might might want to write a cross-reference to Psalm 18, as they are effectively the same psalm. There are a few phrases that are added 
in Psalm 18 that we don't have here in 2 Samuel 22, but effectively it's the same song. Those modifications perhaps being made when it was put into the Psalter, put into the hymnal, uh, the Psalm, the Psalms, for uh, perhaps mo- uh, melody reasons, maybe to make it a little bit easier to sing or whatever the case may be. So we start in 2 Samuel 22 in verse 1 and we read this. David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. We find the specific context of this psalm, the deliverance out of the hand of David's enemies and out of the hand of Saul. Now, it might be interesting to note, first off, at the outset, that David actually puts a distinction as he writes this psalm between his enemies and Saul. Now, David, of course, Saul... David was Saul's enemy. Saul hated David. But as we look in 1 Samuel, as we studied through it many months ago, Saul was never David's enemy. Saul, as a matter of fact, when David saw Saul, he often called him father. And rightfully so, because he was married to Saul's daughter. But he was effectively another father figure to David. He was his king. He was not David's enemy. And so David is taking this time toward the end of his life, having fought many battles, having conquered many foes, to reflect upon God's goodness. And he begins this in in verse 2, but we find, first of all, uh, this outline. And I I give you this outline so that you can understand a little bit of the the structure of the psalm as we go through it. Verses 2 through 4 is going to give us an introduction. And then we'll read in verses 5 through 7 a cry. That, that David makes to God in trouble. Verses 8 through 20, David describes God's deliverance. Verses 21 through 28, uh, God's reasons for deliverance. 29 through 40, uh, God's goodness to David, as David proclaims God's goodness. 41 to 49, David's victory over his enemies. And then 50 and 51 is David's determination unto praise. And that's the basic outline that we'll go through. We'll kind of follow that structure Um, this evening as we walk through the psalm. And I do encourage you to think of this psalm uh, as a template. One of the things that I I think sometimes we fall into, particularly in prayer, is a mindset of constant asking. And we forget about the privilege of praise. To reflect upon that which God has done. As we thought about last week, Prayer with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving, as Philippians 4 reminds us in verse 6, be careful, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep, shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so David here is taking the time, at this point in his life, to reflect upon God's goodness and to purposefully praise Him in the midst. In verse 2 we read this. And He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. You'll notice that there's immediately a a, a difference between Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 here. I'm not going to highlight all of the differences as we go through this song. But in Psalm 18, he says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. Then 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Almost setting a little bit more of the theme. And we'll consider that deeper as we look into verse 3 where we see David's determinations. The psalm begins with a determination that he will love the Lord. Our text, as we merge it, David declares the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Remember, David is thinking in the context of battles here. He was a warrior. Everything that he would be thinking as far as God would would, would be in the context of war. He contemplates not Jerusalem as his fortress, not Hebron where he began his kingdom, not Gibeah where Saul reigned, but the Lord. He says, when I think of my fortress as a warrior, my base, my place of strength, my place of safety, it's not my king, my, my castle, it's not uh, Jerusalem, it's not Hebron. The Lord is my fortress. God is my strength. What David recognizes here is that it is not location or physical might or circumstance that has kept him safe from the attacks of those that have sought his life, but it is God who has been his protection whether exposed or concealed, whether strong or weak physically, whether young or old physically, God has been there. It has been God who has been David's rock, his fortress, his deliverer. And, he says, excuse me, the God of my rock, in Him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high power and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me. From violence, verse 4. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. In light of God's power, in light of God's deliverance, David declares two I wills here. Two votes of confidence in the living God. He says, first of all, I will trust. Verse 3, I will trust in Him. And then in verse 4, he says, I will call upon the Lord. David is fully persuaded that having trusted in God, having called upon God for help, he will, as he has always been, saved from his enemies. David fought enemies on every side. We read about that early in his reign. He fought north. He fought south. He fought east. He fought west. But God has never abandoned him to his enemies. And this, this is not just the legacy of the theocracy of Israel, is it? This is the legacy of the church. That God has never abandoned His people. The gates of hell have never prevailed against the church. God has never left you, nor has He forsaken you. The church's defense is not a building. It's not a government structure. It's not a hierarchy or an organization. The church's defense is the Lord. And we have great and precious promises. David then describes his troubles in verses 5 through 7. He says, When the waves of death, death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And He did hear my voice out of His temple. And my cry did enter into His ears. David perhaps thinks back to the number of occasions for which he describes the waves of death compassing or surrounding him. When he, he fled from Saul for the first time and Doeg the Edomite saw him and reported back to Saul 
threatened him with exposure. Maybe he felt the waves of death. Maybe when he went to the king of Gath for that first time and they wanted to kill him and he had to feign madness. Maybe he felt death surround him. As he continued to flee from Saul, he was constantly in fear for his life, sometimes in despair, hiding in caves, always one step ahead of Saul, never knowing if he's going to have another day. So deep were the times of his sorrow that he calls them the sorrows of hell or the sorrows of the grave, the snares of death. And he says that they were before him. They prevented him. That idea of prevent here, if you look at what that word prevent actually means, it means to go before. When we think of the word prevent, we often think of hindering something. I'm preventing something from happening. That means it's going to happen and I'm trying to stop it from happening. But that's not really the essence of what the word prevent means. The word prevent means to proceed or to anticipate. So to prevent something from happening is literally to go before it, to precede it, to get ahead of it. And then if you want to change the outcome, you can do that because you're ahead of it. So you can stop it from happening if you prevent it, if you get in front of it. And so David says here that the sorrows of hell surrounded him, that the snares of death prevented him. They went before him, that when he looked forward, everything that he saw was, was a, a trap for, to kill him. Trap after trap, snare after snare, unto death. And in these times of despair, David did the only thing he could do. He fled to his rock, to his fortress. He called upon the Lord. He cried unto his God, and the Bible says the cry entered into the ears of the Lord. The Lord heard him when he cried, and though David's enemies would come close, they would not prevail. And David poetically describes the results of his cry. As he does so, he writes of God's deliverance. We read this in verses 8 and 9. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured coals were kindled by it. As David describes God's deliverance, he writes that the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the heavens were moved that they shook. That, that God in His wrath moved on behalf of His servant. That God was angry that the enemies of God would come against His servant. And so He began to take steps to deliver His servant from His enemies. And this goes back to God as David's fortress, as his rock, as his protection. He says, God, when I was in danger, you took it upon yourself. You stepped in for me. You got angry and your wrath was poured out. When God decides to work, creation shakes and trembles. God cannot be resisted. Why would David need physical walls when God is on his side? What else does David need? if God is working for him. And he continues his illustration of God's strength here, saying that smoke came out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth, which kindled coals. There's only one creature that we know of described in the biblical account that would meet this description, a creature where smoke came out of his nostrils and fire came out of its mouth. It's, it's a creature that Job describes in the book of Job called Leviathan. And Leviathan was called a creature whose scales were as armor, whose 
who had fire coming out of his mouth, who smoke came out of his nostrils, what we would call today a dragon. A dragon. And while uh, indeed we don't find dragons today, we see dragons in nearly every ancient culture and every ancient civilization depicted. It's most likely true, particularly because we see them described in the Word of God, that dragons were indeed real beasts. But either way, as David is attempting to describe the strength and the ferocity of God to work on his behalf, he thinks of the greatest creature he, he can bring his mind to. And it's a creature that smoke comes out of his mouth, or out of his nostrils, fire comes out of his mouth. It's Leviathan. It's the Leviathan of Job. Describing God's great strength. And David continues in verses 8 through, tw- through 10, or excuse me, 10 through 12. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rose upon a cherub and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. The concept of the heavens bowing and coming down, that would be like dark clouds falling as God begins to move toward the earth. The darkness being under God's feet, as we see from verse 12. It it is the imagery of a thick, dark layer of clouds. The picture is Jehovah coming down out of heaven, and literally he's leaving his throne to judge and deliver David. And through all of this poetic imagery, which it is poetic imagery, this is not literal, in the Psalms, we understand that there's a great amount of of poetic license, just like poetry today. This is Hebrew poetry, so there's poetic license here. Throughout all of this poetic imagery, I hope you can see, as David describes, the, the deeply personal nature of this. David cries unto the Lord because his enemies are surrounding him. Death is before him. And God is moving heaven and earth and coming off of his throne and, depart, and, and lowering himself, bringing himself down to earth to deliver David. This is how David perceives God working on his behalf. Have you ever felt that way? That, that God cared enough about you that literally he changed circumstances in life just for you? That, that God has moved on your behalf? That's what David is, is describing here. God moved on my behalf. God did this for me because he loves me. What a beautiful thought. God going out of his way, denying any obstruction, denying any barrier to deliver the man unto whom he promised deliverance. When a man is on God's side, what has he to fear? Who has he to fear? No man can stand against God. No government can stand against God. And indeed, no demon can stand against God. So what has a man to fear when he is on God's side? David continues, verses 13 to 15. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. Those were the coals he kindled with his mouth a few verses ago. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. The imagery continues. God is now physically scattering David's enemies. The darkness of the clouds that preceded the Lord now break. And those coals, which is often an imagery in the scriptures of judgment, the coals are kindled and arrows are sent to scatter his enemies and lightning confuses them. God speaks out of heaven in defense of his child. 
and scatters David's enemies. Verses 16 to 18. And the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me and drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. David shows an amazing understanding here. Uh, we don't have any record in his life that he himself was a seafaring man, but we know that ancient civilizations understood the seas very well, and all throughout this earth there are channels through which the, the, in the seas, and, and there are, are currents and tides that take boats in certain directions. That's what he's describing here. But what he's describing is that as God spoke... Literally, the waters fled so that the bottoms of the earth, again, we're poetic here, so that the bottoms of the earth were exposed. The channels, the foundation of the earth was exposed. That God revealed himself, he revealed his judgment. In other words, the very seas themselves fled at the Lord's rebuke. The force of his words, the intensity of his presence. Nothing can stand against the Lord. If you've ever stood as we think of this beautiful description, if you've ever stood at the water's edge and seen the waves crash against the, the beach, or if you've ever seen a mighty waterfall, you, you know the power of water, the force of water. Water erodes rock. Water, it, it, it's a powerful force. And yet as David describes God's proactivity in helping him, he says the waters even fled at God's rebuke. And then in a beautiful description of personal love and gentility in the midst of all of this power, God carefully draws out his child from the enemies who surround him and delivers him from them who are too strong for him. And in this we see the Lord depicted, if I may call him this, as a gentle giant. A God with limitless power, but who cares so much for his children with such transcendent love that all of that power will work toward gently delivering His children. A force of astonishing authority, but who is beyond all else intrinsically kind and good to those that love Him. Verses 19 and 20. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me. I love this. Because he delighted in me. David finishes his account of deliverance with a contrast. His enemies prevented. That, that's that word to come before. His enemies were before him. They came before him. They were waiting for him. They wanted to destroy him. But God was his stay. But God delivered him. And notice the reason. And this reason will transition into our next our next subset of the scriptures here, our next subset of the psalm. God delivered David, he says, because he delighted in me. Why would God do this? Why would God deliver his child? Why would God move heaven and earth for his children? Why would God delight in you? Why would God delight in me? David describes it, beginning in verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. 
For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. God delighted in David because God delights in the righteous. God rewards according to the cleanness of David's hands. God is with those who are with him, who do not wickedly depart from him. God delighted in David and delivered David because David was obedient. Verses 23 through 25. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, to my cleanness in his eyesight. David gives insight into his choice here. He says, God's judgments were in front of me and I had a choice. Do them or don't. Now we've seen David make both of these choices in his life, right? We've seen him make good choices. And if you remember the outline that I gave you at the beginning of our 2 Samuel series, his, his, his reign really hinges on that event with Bathsheba. Before that event, David saw nothing but success. After that event, was nothing but decline. And that event, uh, event was the hinge upon which all of that turned. David gives insight into God's deliverance of him, saying, I saw God's judgments. They were before me, and I chose to follow them. He obeyed. He was upright. He kept himself from iniquity. And God rewarded him for his obedience with deliverance. And God, uh, David then gives the principle by which God operates. Look at verses 26 through 28. With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt show thyself unsavory. And the afflicted people thou wilt save. But thine eyes are upon the haughty that thou mayest bring them down. These verses form the essence of the psalm. God is a loving God. And he desires to deliver but in the essence of God's character, we find this, that His mercy is for the merciful. His uprightness is for the upright. And He is, the Scriptures say, unsavory with the froward. With those who would take liberties, God will withhold His blessing. But the reward of obedience is so great. It's the reward of deliverance. Even more so, consider verses 29 and 30. David says, For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop. By my God I have leaped over a wall. David says, You are my light. You are what lightens the darkness of my way. I don't know what way to go. I don't know the, the direction. And then you show up and you're the light. And you lighten my path. You direct me in the way that I should go. You help me navigate the snares of death that are around me. You help me navigate the confusion, the unknowns, and the enemies. And he says, so by you I've run through a troop, God. By you I've leapt over the wall. And it's important to consider the deep link between David's success and his obedience. We've seen over the past many chapters how quickly David's success fell apart when he departed from the commandments of the Lord. But God, on the other hand, David writes this in verse 31. As for God, His way 
is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. God's way, it's a perfect way. Every time. God's word is tried. It's proven. We don't have to believe it. But it's proven. 2,000 years of the church have proven God's word. Thousands of years of Israel's history before that have proven God's word. It is true. The question is, are we going to believe it? And are we going to obey it? God hasn't changed. Verses 32 to 35. For who is God save the Lord? Who is a rock save our God? God is my strength and power. He maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken in mine arms. Who is God, David says. There is no God but our God. Who is God but the Lord? There is no other God but Jehovah God. There is no other rock. There's no other firm foundation save our God. We can't stand upon the foundation of money and rest secure. We can't stand on the foundation of strength and might and rest secure. We can't stand on the foundation of reputation and rest secure. David was a king. He was a mighty warrior. And he says, what is my foundation? It's not my strength. It's not my kingdom. It's not my wealth. Who is a rock save our God? He gives us strength. He gives us success. Anything good that you have, it's, it's of the Lord. He is our everything. Verses 36 and 37. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. What a beautiful phrase. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me so that my feet did not slip. Consider these words. The greatness of our God. The power of His strength. The success found in His words. God had given David physical success, but more than this, God had given David the shield of His, the, the shield of his salvation. In Ephesians chapter 6, as we consider the armor of God, Paul calls it the helmet of salvation. David says the shield of salvation, the same concept that spiritually speaking we are saved. We are we are protected. And then he says, thy gentleness hath made me great. This all-powerful God whose nostrils have smoke, whose breath is fire, who cries out and the waters scatter, who comes down and discomforts the enemies with lightning and with the, the, the strength of his power. And David says, my greatness, God, is found in thy gentleness. We'll come back to that in a, in a little while. Verses 38 to 40, we hasten on. I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them, and turned not again until I had consumed them. I have consumed them and wounded them, that they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet, for thou hast girded me with strength to battle. Them that rose up against me hast thou subdued under me. David begins to talk about his victory here, what God has enabled him to do. 
the success, the gentleness of God that made him great. This is that greatness. He talked about being able to break the bow of steel. Of course, something that would be um, unfounded to break a steel bow with a man's hand. Um, and even in um, secular literature, we read of men that they were not able to um, string a bow, to bend a bow enough to string it in their own strength. And there were very few men that could do that because of how much strength it took to do so. And yet here David says, you allowed me to break a bow. You gave me all the strength that I could possibly fathom. Again, poetically here, that God has delivered David and given him success. David's success is perceived on the field of battle. Oftentimes, we don't really perceive our success that way. We don't perceive our success in terms of conquering and in terms of battles. But the marks of God's blessing are unmistakable upon those who follow God's word. And David's victory over his enemies, he describes, he's begun, he continues in verses 41 to 49. Let's read the whole thing together. He says, thou hast, now you don't have to read with me, that's not what I mean. Uh, we're going to read all all. Nine verses together is what I mean there. Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies, that I might destroy them that hate me. They looked, there was none to save, even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. Then did I beat them as small as the dust of the earth. I did stamp them with the mire of the street, and did spread them abroad. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people. Thou hast kept me to be the head of the heathen. A people which I knew not shall serve me. Strangers shall submit themselves unto me as soon as they hear. <clears throat> Excuse me. They shall be obedient unto me. Strangers shall fade away and they shall be afraid out of their close places. The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God that avengeth me and that bringeth down the people under me and that bringeth me forth from mine enemies. Thou also hast lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. David speaks of the deliverance here and he, as he considers his deliverance, he says, my enemies even fled to the Lord, but the Lord was on my side. There was nothing they could do. There was no way they could resist because God was on my side. And then he says, the Lord liveth and blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. God has done this. For me. And as is so often in the Psalms, David finishes the way he began. He goes full circle. We read in verses 50 and 51. Therefore, he says, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen. I will sing praises unto thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed, unto David, and to his seed forevermore. He began with determinations that he will give thanks, that he will call upon the Lord. And now he says again, therefore I will give thanks. I will sing. I will declare God's goodness even before the heathen. I will declare God's goodness to all who will hear. Now, with all of this in mind, we're going to spend a little bit of time in our application this evening considering the message of the psalm. And in large part, it's encapsulated in verse 31. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler 
to all them that trust in Him. God's way is perfect. It is tried and found correct. You can't improve upon God's way. You cannot do better than what God wants for you. When you walk with God, you can't do better. When you walk away from God, really you can't do worse. So let's walk through a couple of contexts found in the text. Concepts worthy of your full attention. Again, I don't have them up on the screen. My apologies for that this evening. Point number one. God is good and gentle. His ears are open and he is eager to bless. God is good and gentle. His ears are open and he is eager to bless. This is a concept of pure delight. The God of the universe, the God of all creation cares about you. He hears you when you cry. He watches you. He loves you. And he is eager, as David put it, to delight in you. David spends verses describing the excessive power of God. Do you know that power? Have you ever stood at the edge of the ocean and seen the power of the water? Have you ever stared into the darkness of space on a clear night and considered the vastness of the created order? Created in a moment of time? Do you see God's power when you see human ingenuity? When we carry around our entire world on this little five-inch piece of glass and you think, wow, humans are pretty ingenious. Does that then carry forth to, wow, what kind of a God created these people? Do you see God's power in the storms? When you hear that thunder, when you feel the rafters shake in your house through the thunder, when you hear the wind and see what it can do, do you see God's power? God's power is beyond power. And yet, He is gentle. He is good. David said in 2 Samuel 22, verse 36, Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. God's greatness is certainly evidenced in His power, but perhaps more still, God is great because God is good and gentle and kind. And his gentility gives us hope. We sang this evening, my hope is in the Lord. God is gentle, which means we can appeal to him. And he desires to bless us. We have a chance through the greatness of his gentility to be God's delight. I wish my feeble words could describe exactly what this means, what it means to you. I wish we could take the potential and potency of this reality and, and put it directly into our heads. The human heart longs for love and for acceptance and for safety and for guidance. It longs for protection. It longs for provision. Imagine the very greatest realization of all of those ideals. Imagine yourself in the place of truest peace and of rest. The place that you love and long to be. Set yourself there in a place of comfort and joy and happiness. All of your delights realized and that is your God. 
That's the God who created you, who wants to know you and love you and delight in you. Shakespeare wrote in his 147th sonnet, My love is as a fever, longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease. He was actually speaking there of an immoral relationship with one of his mistresses there, and he was saying that his love is like a disease, but his longing is to make the disease worse. And if such poetic, beautiful language could describe something that was so immoral, how much more might we imagine God's longing for us? His virtuous love for His own rebellious creation is a well so deep that no man has yet to plumb its depths. A God who through all that we've done against Him, though terrible in judgment, is yet so gentle and good that He delights in we, His fallible creation. If we could but taste this truth, what might life be like? If the tip of our finger could but touch the reality of the goodness and the gentleness of God, of His desire to delight in us, nothing would ever be the same. Do we want this God to delight in us? Do we ache for that thriving personal relationship with our Creator. The reality of God's goodness is made to grow in us insatiably. In a, in a desire to know God, to understand God, to be found a delight unto Him. God has baked that into us. And, and if you don't feel that way, if you, if you don't understand that, if God's gentle goodness has not touched you in that way, if God's delight is not something you crave, if the world or the flesh or the devil has so confused your senses or, or things have so muddied the waters or uh, your fatigue or your, your um, busyness or whatever it might be has so cons- consumed you that as a child of God uh, you care not for the deepest favors of your Father, then perhaps tonight can be the night where we renew that loving longing for Him to delight in us. If this is what we want, if this is what we crave, we can have it. And we can have it through obedience. Concepts worthy of your full attention. First, God is good and gentle. His ears are open and He is eager to bless. Secondly, this evening... God delights in the obedient and rewards them. God delights in the obedient and He rewards them. Truly, James 1 verse 17 is correct when James wrote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the fathers of light, Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The good gifts of this life are not purchased with money. The good gifts of this life have been purchased with Christ's blood. They are given by a loving father to his obedient children. David said in verses 21 and 22, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. The rewards of the righteous are deliverance and delight. The reward of keeping the word of the Lord is being kept in the way of true success, of God's blessing, of a life of joy, one free from guilt, 
one free from fear, one free from that spiritual sorrow. That doesn't mean that we go through life without trouble. That doesn't mean we go through life without persecution, without lack. That doesn't mean that we go through life and we'll never have emotional pain or physical pain, that we'll never have material want. Those things are not the things that God has intrinsically promised. And yet, there is success to be found and blessing to be found in the Lord. And on this point, we must understand that God has not hid this way from you. David said in verse 23, all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. God is not the great trickster in the sky, hiding from you his will and then punishing you when you don't find it. He's not standing up there in heaven or sitting on his throne laughing as you grope in the darkness for his will. It's not some sort of sport to him. He desires for you to live that life of blessedness. He desires for you to be in that way. David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Joy, pleasure. These things aren't rooted in the the material promises of this earth. They're not rooted in the people that are around you. No shiny toy can buy you joy. Even people intrinsically cannot cannot bring you that, that eternal, that transcendent joy. The things that bring joy are those things that are rooted in God. Has God given you something? Well, then there's joy in God's gift. As we identify God's will, we walk in God's will, and God gives us that joy. So David writes in verses 26 and 27, With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful, with the upright thou wilt show thyself upright. His words are echoed by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, where Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we want mercy, well, God's mercy is with those who would conform themselves to God's mercy. Do you want God to deal with you in loving equity? Well, he's upright with the upright. Do you want to experience the purity of God's joy and contentment? Well, he shows his purity to those who are pure. God's not trying to hide a blessing from you. Most likely, if something is hiding God's blessing from you, it's you. It's me. Because we want what we want. Why obey our parents, whom God has given us? And he makes no mistake when their way is not what we want. Why obey God's commands for us to be pure in mind or in body, which God has without mistake called us unto when his way is not what we want? Why wait on God's timing for the things that you desire, for the things that you need, as God has promised to provide, when you want what you want and you want it when you want it? See, the world, the flesh, and the devil have convinced us, like Satan did to Eve, that God does not have your best interest in mind. That God is attempting to hold you back from something, from some delight, from some enjoyment. 
that the world around you has something to offer you which cannot be found in God, and that is greater if you just seek that. And we can be fooled if we have either never tasted or we have forgotten the taste of the goodness of God. And if we haven't tasted His goodness, we can rest assured of this one thing. It's not because He hasn't had it there. It's because we've not been willing to, to, to take it. And so we're missing out. And a lot of times we don't even know it. David wrote in Psalm 34, verse 8, The Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Excuse me, taste and see. That's how, how that began. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Do you relate to David's words in Psalm 84, verses 10 and 11? David's writing and he says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Do you relate to those verses? Have you ever chosen, instead of dwelling in the tents of wickedness, to be a doorkeeper in the house of your God, to see the goodness of God? I had fainted, David said, unless I believed, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But the funny thing about it is we'll never know it until we have enough faith to take the step of obedience. That's the trick. The knowledge of the goodness of God you can hear the words all day. I can hear the words all day. I can read them in the Bible all day. I can, I can say God is good, but the reality of God's goodness is only realized in those that are willing to take the step of faith to obey. And then, it comes like a flood upon us. Until we step out and yield ourselves to God, we will never know just how much God has in store for us. We often uh, talk about this. My wife and I, and I've given the illustration a couple times. It's sometimes like that with our children. I'll come home and I'll have something for my children. Something I want to give them. Some way that I want to bless them. And I desire to bless them. And I've got this surprise for them. And then they're disobedient. And I'm trying so hard to help them do what's right and to make the right choice. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Settle down. You don't want to go down this path. And they choose to go down it anyway. And they're disobedient. And that thing that I was going to give them, I cannot give them anymore. And they will never even know what they missed. Because they had chosen to do wrong. They, they, they don't even know. I don't even tell them. They don't know what they've missed. So too it can be with God. That God is up in heaven and He has a blessing and He wants us to have it. And then we don't go His way we don't even know what we're missing. And I'm generalizing. Perhaps you know. Perhaps you've tasted and seen. I hope you have. Have you? Is it a daily thing? James said in James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Wherefore lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, 
and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. In other words, James says, the, the hearer but not the doer is like a man who gets up in the morning and he looks in the mirror and his hair is all over the place and he's got something in his teeth and he's a mess. And he looks and he says, okay, this is how I look. And then as soon as he leaves the mirror, he forgets it. And so he leaves for the day looking that way. He completely forgot what he saw in the mirror when he looked in. James says, when we look into the Word of God, it's like looking into a mirror. We open this book and we see ourselves the way we truly are. We look into the world and the world tells you, you're this, you're that, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're this. We look into the Word of God and we find that we are not quite all that, are we? And James says the person who is blessed in his deed is the person who looks into the mirror of God's word, sees himself for who he is, and then slicks his hair back and brushes his teeth. Gets it right. Sees himself for who he is and, and doesn't forget it. And approaches the word of God and approaches God recognizing who we are in light of him. That man is the blessed man. Concepts worthy of your full attention. First, God is good and gentle. His ears are open and he's eager to bless. Second, God delights in the obedient and rewards them. Third and finally, God's power, goodness, gentleness, and declarations demand a response. God's power, goodness, gentleness, and declarations demand a response. Between Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, we find four I wills. I will love the Lord. I will trust the Lord. I will call upon the Lord. I will give thanks unto the Lord. I can tell you what the Bible says. I can give you firsthand assurance that what God's Word is set, says is true. All of us to one degree or another could probably stand up and give testimonies of the ways you've seen God's Word come to pass. But we can't. I can't make you. You can't make me believe it. Jesus said in John 13, 17, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Perhaps you're on the edge of major life decisions. Perhaps you're wondering, should I follow God or not? 2 Samuel is a case study of both paths. David was on the path of following the Lord and he saw true success. He got off that path and he found great judgment. The warning is not just for those on the beginning of this path. The warning is for all of us. God's character demands a response, a daily response to us. Will you love him? Will you trust him? Will you call upon him? Will you give thanks unto him? Will you take the word of God and follow it? Will the declarations of God's word touch you, compel you in your actions, or will you leave it here and fall back into your way? Well, maybe you're already there this evening. You have chosen the Lord. You're walking with Him. You are seeing those delights. You have experienced those delights. He delights in you. You have faltered, because we all do, but you're walking with Him would you maintain? Can you stick to the stuff? 
Be not weary in well-doing, Galatians 6.19 says, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Lift up your weary head. Be reminded of the good and gentle God, the Father who sees you, who loves you, who knows you, who wants your best, who's not trying to hide his best from you. He delights in you. And by God's grace, may we find God to be that which David found God to be in the text this evening. May God be the delight of our delight. May he be the joy of our joy. May he be the peace of our peace. May he be the love of our love. May he be our all in all. Let's close in prayer.